You're listening to 50% Facts, the show where we try to answer specific questions on an individual topic, and then at the end, we bring in an expert to give you the real answers. I'm Jim McDonald. And I'm Mike Farr. Welcome to our show. So tell me about that pizza you had in Boston. Are we going live? Yeah, we're live. Hey, so we're live. I've been to Boston 10, 10 times maybe, maybe yeah. more. Two, two, two to three times for the last five years, typically Reebok type stuff, sometimes mm-hmm. fun signed with it, but uh, North End mm-hmm. is like their little Italy. Right. And famous for many a thing, but uh, obviously food. And there's a place, uh, Regina's, that okay. is the spot. And it started, I believe, in Little Italy. I'm no pizza historian, but <laughs> that's what I believe. <laughs> so it started there, and now they, they it's like a local chain. They have like 30 of them. It's kind of like a walk-up place in the mall okay. kind of deal now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the original is there, and uh, I've never been. All 10 trips, and I've heard about it forever. Mm-hmm. There's a, another place called Mike's Pastries. A lot of people might have heard about, just known for their cannolis and shit. And mm-hmm. I've been there. I've been there. Yeah, delicious. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so Regina is pretty close. It's around the, the corner. But every time we would try to go, the line, it's small, really small inside, mm-hmm. probably like five booths in the original one. Mm-hmm. We could have got it elsewhere, but I'm kind of the guy like yeah, yeah. when in Rome, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so every time the line's out the door, so we never end up getting it. And uh, I think we landed 10, 10.30 at night or so. And it closes at midnight. So we just, and luckily, actually, my Airbnb was way overpriced and a piece of shit, like always. Uh, <laughs> I hate Airbnb. It just always sucks. There's always an issue, sometimes big, sometimes middle. There's yeah. always a fucking, like, we'll get into that next. So we landed 10, threw our shit down, and we just walked there. Uh, and it was really, it was what you expect. It was good. And, and like, I was really hungry too, but like, like the the they they do like a the ovens from Italy you know 130 years mm. old oven all that deal and so like the the bottom of the crust is so crisp and perfect and then there's like almost like a little bit of doughy in between kind of like a, how I like a cookie oh, okay. you want it crisp but yeah, the inside's yeah. kind of soft right, right the dough was like that and then toppings and everything tasted all local and original uh, off point but still on pizza and cooking it have you know how I've, I've i've seen this for years but i've never really done it until the other day that when you reheat pizza you shouldn't do it in the microwave you should do it in a yeah, pan for sure yeah in the oven yeah yeah or yeah. on it you can put oh, like, ca- like cast iron on top of the oh, stove never done that but I'd, oven for sure oh I, i'm honestly i'm a big cold pizza guy as well okay i'm not against yeah, I mean, the cold I, pizza yeah. I, yeah i like a cold pizza as yeah. well but it it makes such, so much difference to the to the crust yeah microwave sucks microwave ruins everything really it kind of does and and which makes sense too because i know all those hippies out there like it takes away micronutrients and it probably does but it definitely fucks up texture most of it it fucks up texture i think that that it plays off on a couple issues relative to um to nutrition because it uh heating makes some proteins more yeah, available yeah. more bioavailable yeah yeah whereas i think maybe you lose a little bit in terms of um some of the micros i don't yeah. know i don't I, know I, i've heard that too there's some like fucking stupid maybe this is another episode <laughs> some stupid fucking instagram uh uh you know graphics that show like how much micronutrients you lose when you cook broccoli, when you steam it, compared to when you mm. bake it, compared to when you eat it raw, compared to when you microwave mm. it. I don't know who the hell would know that. You know, Some kind of chef, maybe? Maybe so. Some There's got to be a nutritionist chef we can talk to about th- that one. There, there has to be. Um, one of the things that I've started doing, though, with the vegetables that take a long time to roast in the in the oven is I start them in the microwave. I, oh. I put, like, steam them in the microwave yeah. for for three, four, five, six minutes, whatever, how long, however dense they are, how, however much I'm trying to do it once. 
and I'm heating the oven up while that's going on, and then I throw them in the pan with olive oil and salt and pepper, and then it doesn't take nearly as long. It yeah, takes, yeah. you know, maybe two-thirds the time instead of, or maybe half the time, depending. I do microwave fucking frozen vegetables, and everyone, like, talks to me, like, so bad for you. Like, bro, I eat more vegetables than 99% of the world. Not maybe yeah. not the world, but America for sure. Yeah. You know, like, if they're frozen, it's still better than none. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's how I th- that's how I talk about everything. Like, I drink energy drink, and everyone's fucking talking shit to me. Like, bro, yeah, I'm not getting hammered every weekend, you know? Let me have this mm-hmm. goddamn energy drink. And these, yeah, are th- is this broccoli not as good as this organic freaking eating it raw or broccoli? Yeah, it's probably not, but I'm still getting some broccoli, and, like, every motherfucker's eating Cheetos and Taco Bell every day, you know? <laughs> I'm doing okay. Yeah, I know. You're probably doing That's fine. how I think about it. Yeah, you're probably doing fine. I mean, it's it's better than not, for right, sure. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Best pizza. Prince Street Pizza in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Fucking next level good. And then I think it's Joe's. I think that's like the go-to in Manhattan. I think it's like there's multiple locations and it's this one, you know, Tobey Maguire's on the fucking wall. I think oh. Spider-Man, it's in Spider-Man. It's in Spider-Man. It, like shit like that. I might be wrong. Okay. But I think it's like, I think it's called Joe's. Pretty good. But I think Prince Street's best pizza I've ever had in my life. I honestly like our local spot. And some people don't, but I love Chicago Fire here. And I, and I do have relations. I, I grew up with the kids uh-huh. uh, whose, whose family owns that. But I honestly think it's fucking really good deep dish. But I've never been to Chicago, so that's my last pizza. There's some really good pizza everywhere, though. Like, people, like, New York obviously is known for it. Any little Italy is kind of known for it. Chicago is known for it. But, like, in Cleveland, where my dad's from, there's a shit ton of Italians. And and, and I didn't, I guess I didn't realize even, but the world probably doesn't realize, like, it's right next to New York. Like, it's considered the Midwest, but it's, like, right fucking there. Like, you drive across Pennsylvania, which isn't that big of a state, and you're literally in Manhattan, you know? So, like... There's shit tons of Italians through that whole kind of corner of Northeast America. Right. And there's fucking good pizza. And yeah, so yeah. Um, there's this place called Frankie's. And it's like a mini chain in Cleveland uh-huh. too. Uh, so good. The pizza's so good. And then you get a salad and it comes in a bowl, like a kind of see-through. It kind of looks like a, you guys ever been to, uh, what's that shitty spot? Sizzler? Yeah, <laughs> so so it's like a the the ice cream bowl you get from Sizzler. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? It's like see through plastic. I'm sorry, Sizzler, if you want to sponsor <laughs> us, but you are shit. Uh, it's a plastic Sizzler bowl, but a, a bigger, uh-huh. and it's just like a pre made probably lettuce mix with carrots and cabbage or whatever. Right. But then they take fresh mozzarella that's like the size of a softball. And they just put it on top. So it almost looks like an ice cream sundae with lettuce underneath yeah, yeah. and a fucking pile of mozzarella on top. And then they have some kind of dressing. And I don't, it's like a sweet Italian. I don't know what it is. And like it's a, like a balsamic kind of, but it's super sugary. Like oh, it tastes really? sweet, sweet. Huh, okay. Uh, it almost tastes like it's like, you know, you would expect that like a Japanese place or something, you know, like their dressings are sometimes kind of sweet. I don't know, but it's fucking amazing. And then their pizza is hella good too. So I think you can get good pizza anywhere. That's like the one, you know? Yeah, the the Chicago style pizza is is amazing. Yeah. The one that the one here in town is, is at uh, Chicago Fire is fine. The yeah. one, uh, getting in in Chicago is amazing. I'm sure. But, and it, the crazy thing about it is that you can eat so much more of it than you think you're going to be able to because it looks so hefty. Yeah, and it is, but I can eat so much pizza. I can eat a lot yeah. of pizza, yeah. It, you just never get full off pizza, which is, is, is negative. And, and, and just fuck you people out there. One, fuck you people that put pineapple on your pizza. That's dumb. Two, fuck you people that are so adamant there's some people that literally don't eat deep dish or the opposite. Like, I don't eat things. Fuck you. They're both pizzas. They're and still pizza. They're yeah. so good. And, and like, if you, if you just could take the taste, mm-hmm. 
Now we're getting a little out there. But if you could just take the taste and put it in like, you know, like a little drop form, the taste yeah. of a deep dish and the taste of a regular is the same. Oh, yeah. You know, because the, the ingredients, the part, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. more the texture yeah. and it's the bite and maybe maybe yeah. the ratio of dough to, to cheese to sauce. And yeah. that's kind of dependent on restaurant anyways. But fuck you people out there that are so against deep dish. And also, fuck your counter, who's also so against thin crust. You guys all suck. Just enjoy pizza. It's it's God invented it on the eighth day, and we're all blessed. <laughs> My favorite is still thin crust, but like uh, it really Italian style, like hot Italian here in town is, is yeah, it's good. It's thin crust. I, hot but, Italian is good, but, but pizza is pizza, right? Uh, I love a Sicilian. That's what I got at Prince Street, like a yeah. real thick dough. It's almost like a bread, bread cake, dough, yeah, yeah, and it's square. And, and then the, the the pepperonis are are curled up like they've been sizzled on a mm, open fire. Yeah. And I love all that. I love uh, all pizza. Uh, bell pepper, green bell pepper. Yeah, a little bell pepper, a little yeah. onion, a little pizza, a little pepperoni. I yeah. like it all. We had a meatball pizza with a ricotta cheese at, at mm. Regina's. That was amazing. Mm. That's delicious. Now that we got you all turned on. Yeah, now I'm all hungry and shit. Um, I wonder how pizza contributes to tendonitis. It I doesn't. It doesn't. Oh, yeah. maybe. All these motherfuckers out there. Fuck you out there, too, always talking about your inflammation. Yeah. The, the, okay, so this is one of those, like, this has got to be a fact, and it's a 100% fact, that the relationship between diet and inflammation is... If you eat less and you lose weight, you have less inflammation. It's right. not anything special beyond that. I don't feel most people that we trust don't feel that way. And Dr. Andy, who we had on previous episodes, was pretty clear about all his inflammation talk. So you guys can go check that out. One, and I've known this for a long time, you can't like gauge it. Yeah. So everyone says, my inflammation's up, my inflammation's down. This helps my inflammation. This hurts my inflammation. Well, fuck you. I'm, I'm fired up today. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And Andy also mentions, which all coaches who know a clue about powerlifting or any strength conditioning, like inflammation isn't inherently bad. It's just a part of the process. Right. Right. And everyone says, well, inflammation causes cancer and inflammation causes bloating. And well, bloating isn't inherently bad either. Like carbs make you hold water. That's weird, motherfucker. I'm made up of water. It's okay if you hold a little bit of water. Like, that's why we drink water. We don't drink water just to pee it out. No. We drink water to hydrate our muscles, to hydrate our cells. Like, it's okay that, and that's kind of what bloat is. Like, sure, you can be more bloated if you're yeah. eating a bunch of salt and not drinking water and you're absorbing all this stuff. Obviously not great, but tendonitis is inflammation. Yeah. Here's here's the little facts I know. Uh, I In reference to what we do often, um, it's very common in powerlifting. That's kind of mm, where yep. we came up with this question. That's why we're having uh, uh, Dr. Aaron on Squat University for those that have seen him on Instagram, uh, iTunes, YouTube, etc. But uh, um, going to a PT for this one, someone much smarter than us. But powerlifting, weightlifting, sports in general, basketball, etc. Uh, baseball, I'm sure it's very big. Yeah, um, mm, uh, pitchers. Yeah, it's like a repetition thing. So yeah. you, you know, uh, when I low bar squat every single day or four days a week. Repetition upon repetition, my elbows are in a real funky position, mm -hmm. and then I got to bench press a bunch of weight after that, mm -hmm. and then I have to get a nice horseshoe tricep for the beach and my tank top after that. So you're doing cable pushdowns, and uh, your elbows taking a lot of beating. Yep. So just repetition upon repetition. Maybe you're not eating well, maybe you're not sleeping well, or maybe you're just pushing your body to end your range of motion with a lot of volume. Um, you will get some inflammation and some pain. I've had some pretty extreme tendonitis that like kind of hurts to open up your whole elbow mm -hmm. to fully extend. Um, and for me to get rid of it, uh, and who knows if this is the, what doc will say, but you just cut down on your inflammation, uh, or excuse me, cut down on your volume. 
start doing a little bit less of what you're doing. And then sometimes certain exercises may uh, expose you to that pain more than others. So pay attention and just eliminate some of those exercises. Yeah, that bench press kind of thing to do that uh, a lot to people. Um, I know that back in the geared days that uh, forearm tendonitis was just kind of the worst thing, because largely because of the um, bench shirt. But squat suit kind of too because you're putting more on your back so you're holding more on your back than you normally would raw and so i mean it's an overload situation and of course you're going to irritate tendons and whatever mine was so bad um when i was when i was competing in gear all the time that uh it hurt to let go of the bar yeah yeah and some people are going to go oh yeah that's happened to me It, it like i would i would make noise yeah. when when I was letting go of the bar. If I missed an attempt, which was pretty often in a bench shirt because, you know, it's a, it's a low percentage play in a bench, bench shirt. I'm sorry. It's just, it is. Uh, it, when somebody would take the, the bar out of my hand, I would yell because it just hurt so much. I wonder uh, if there is an answer because lifting it, it seems simple to me because you kind of directly know what's causing it and you mm. can avoid it, right? Like mm. some people skull crushers avoid it or the barbell avoids it so you, or hurts it so you can kind of do some dumbbell mm. work or something but the more I think about it, like it's probably so common in everything, right? You hear about uh, wrists and elbows from secretaries who type all freaking yeah. day or... Um, Carpal tunnel. Yeah, yeah, which is probably related somehow. Uh, uh, MMA or boxers, right? They're mm-hmm. freaking repeatedly hitting bags so I'd imagine they'd get in their wrist elbows or maybe even shoulders i had it in my shoulder really bad what i imagine was tendonitis uh from benching um, but nearly everything probably has it to some extent uh and 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 you know back to the geared powerlifting days when i got it and i'm a 22 year old kid everyone just said well fish oil and this glucose supplement and well that didn't really fucking help so i wonder i wonder if there is something that actually helps you know? i uh well there is uh, Ice. If it, I don't know. If it goes so badly into um, tendinosis, which is like a degenerative condition, yeah, of the, and longer term, of I think. Ten, yeah. Excuse me. Uh, a thing that studies this is I'm, I'm going way back here because I haven't actually heard anything about this in, in probably more than ten years. Um, IGF one, which yeah. is a you know uh, growth, growth hormone, hormone breakdown. When I wonder the opposite, uh, I wonder if some, because some certain steroid compounds, and I don't know if Dr. Aaron is much in this realm. He might not know. He may not know. Uh, I don't think anyone knows because it's not really studied that much besides yeah. uh, anecdotal or, or personal experience. But I wonder, because certain steroids, uh, performance-enhancing drugs, will make you bloat or hold more water or hold more mm-hmm. junk. Um, so I'd imagine some of that may even play a role in the negative side of tendonitis. Well, like you said, IGF and some others may play a role in fixing it. And yeah. do- doses, obviously, uh, yeah. may play a role too. Uh, one day we'll get like a real steroid. All these things we want to have these people on and talk about. We want to talk about pot and performance. We want to talk about alcohol and performance, which we may be able to do. Uh, but we want to talk about you know performance-enhancing drugs and some of the... Mm-hmm real facts on it right that's the, the point of the show the issue is is like some of these things are one illegal and two not studied and then three like if they are maybe there's a communication barrier because they're not studied in america because steroids Possibly, yeah. and pot are still so yeah. frowned upon uh that we can't get real answers on these things although uh we're continuing to find uh, experts and we'll try um it, like anecdotally uh people have said for a long time that that trend trend balloon is bad for, tendonitis. for tendons you just like period tends, yeah, yeah. To, tends, tends to break things down or steroids in general being bad for tendons in general which because obviously muscle strength 
gets right gets ahead of of tendon. Yeah, with whatever resiliency. Yeah, whatever performance enhancing drugs. At least the majority of them will allow your muscles. They'll have more receptors and they'll be more uh, receptive to the stimulus and adapt quicker than a tendon would. Hence, why a lot of times people on steroids or performance enhancing drugs rip um, not only weirder muscles than someone who maybe not on them, but more often. Right, like. And how I look at this is just literally observational on my point, but you see an NFL like, oh, okay, hamstring uh, tear, mm-hmm. pretty common. I mean, mm-hmm. that that wide receiver's putting out a lot of horsepower and he got hit weird or ACL or mm-hmm. Achilles or maybe even a bicep here and there. Uh, but you don't often hear about professional athletes ripping quads, but there's all these power lifters ripping quads yeah. uh, or or even a tricep. I don't know if I've ever, maybe one pro athlete, and not to say pro athletes aren't on performance energy drugs, but they're probably on lower doses, you'd imagine. Who knows? Uh, but you don't hear them about ripping triceps, but power lifters are ripping triceps and pecs left and right. You know, <laughs> I think biceps are, are, are pretty common in, in sports. Period. Yeah, both uh, sides. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't think. I think um, the hammies. Hammies. When I hear pecs, I always... It's always a question mark. Yeah, I think I think it's less likely again, um, but I think uh, obviously it's all still possible. Yeah, still. Yeah, this is like in hearsay. So yeah, this is all our anecdotal. (laughs) This is the fifty percent part for sure. Um, But I do. Yeah, I mean, performance enhancing drugs play a a role. I mean, obviously that's what tendonitis is. Is is some kind of inflammation of a tendon. Um, I wonder if there's something different with ligaments. I don't know if it's just called the same uh, or if it's. um, You know, I'm gonna probably have to take a pause and. and look that up before we talk. Yeah, to, we uh, can ask him to. Too. Okay. We'll just see what he has to say. And then maybe it's all just, maybe it technically is different and they just throw it into one when you're trying to fix it because maybe the inflammation. So it's one of those things I look up and I just don't retain it. So, and a lot of these things, and you know, for those that maybe, in my opinion, trust the uh, healthcare system too much, uh, doctors can't just look at you and there's no test for, oh, inflammation, oh, tendonitis. Right. You have, what they do is they try to process of eliminate what may be causing your pain in your elbow, mm-hmm. and then they come to a conclusion that is probably tendonitis. But again, this, uh, tendonitis is kind of a general term. You know, like mm-hmm. there's multiple tendons in your elbow, there's multiple tendons in your knee, there's multiple ligaments in your knee. So for them to just to pinpoint something isn't so easy. Uh, they may have a test that directly pinpoints it, but chances are they're not going to spend the money or time to go to that. They're just going to try to figure it out. Yeah. Just in closing, I want to say that uh, I had hamstring tendon several years ago that, that was, um, uh, it had kind of an uncomfortable snap in it. Like it, it would hurt when I was trying to squat or just bend over sometimes it would just like, it would just have a snap and I had an MRI done and they said, oh, it's degenerating. And, uh, they gave me some options and one of them was PRP. So I did PRP and it really helped. However, that, that wasn't the first step. The first step was, well, it looks like there, there are calcium deposits in that, um, in that tendon. We could potentially like just go in with, with a dry needle and break them up under ultrasound and i go in there to do that and they're like we can't find them like pull up the mri where are we looking we can't find them at all so imaging is one of the only ways yeah. to be able to really tell and the imaging isn't all that reliable right it's a lot of things yeah it's just yeah. process elimination and yeah. they try to do their best all right we're gonna bump over to uh dr aaron right now Give us just a little capsule on your background. Yeah, definitely. So I'm a doctor of physical therapy by trade. I work with patients about 40, 50 hours a week at Boost Physical Therapy and Sports Performance out here in Kansas City, working with athletes, you know, as young as eight years old, all the way up to 60, 70 years old. 
Um, I have been in Olympic weightlifting, training and competing since 2005 and uh, started Squat University in 2015 as basically my outreach to be able to help educate and um, just help as many people as possible on a level that everyone can understand. I feel like too often people talk down to the general population as far as athletes and coaches when they're in sort of a medical related field. So I decided to try to take what I had learned and my background and experience with weightlifting and in physical therapy and try to connect to people and help them on a level that everyone can exceed. Uh, that sounds awesome. That's um, I think that that's very true. That it is very difficult to get um, the professionals to speak in a language that the layman can understand. And, mm-hmm. and then it's also, um, I think it's also a trap to think that you can skip that step with people who are professionals, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, because everybody's, uh, everybody's baseline is different. It just, it, they all might appear to be more tuned in than they actually are, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's definitely been a culmination of all of the, the years of experience, not only in school, but then also in helping people on a number of different injuries that, you know, eventually led me to the point where I'm like, all right, I'm ready to now start teaching and talking to everyone else. You know, I'm glad I didn't really have a lot of social media influence when I first started, um, first started practicing as a physical therapist, just because, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And until you have those years under your belt of seeing a number of different types of injuries and a lot of them myself experiencing them in my own training, you know, I don't think you're ready to really start teaching other people yet. Yeah. For sure. So our first question for you is this. Uh, how do you deal with tendonitis and, yeah. and, and potentially get rid of it? Yeah, what, what is it? How do you deal with it? Why does everybody say they have it? And then how do we fix that? <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I guess the, the first thing we have to tackle is first the idea of tendonitis, even using the term, because technically nowadays the term tendonitis is sort of an ancient term as far as is it really medically relevant? Now, hmm. the itis ending refers to inflammation, but actually there's a lot of recent research that challenges the idea that inflammation is even present in tendon pain. So huh. classically, we would think of sort of two terms. We'd say tendonitis is like the acute onset, the very new type of tendon pain. And then if it happened and occurred and stayed long for a long time, we'd call it tendinosis, which is sort of like a degrading part of the tendon but technically it's we sort of see them mashed together and because we don't necessarily think there's a lot of inflammation in tendon injuries we sort of refer to the entire injury now as tendinopathy so technically uh-huh. the term tendinitis isn't medically correct i guess you can say not that 2019 I I really, dude i can't say yeah. anything anymore yeah. everything's so really pc people, you know would get on you like oh it's you know technically you know <laughs> talking down from an ivory tower uh, let's just be real i mean we can throw out the term everyone knows what we're talking about yeah. but the big thing to get across is that it's probably not as much driven by inflammation and the reason that's important to understand besides the the technical jargon that some medical person may spit at you is because you're going to treat it a little bit differently if something is really inflamed or uh, driven by inflammation, a lot of times just like rest, maybe having some ibuprofen, you know, things like that that deal with the markers of inflammation can have a dramatic effect on the type of pain you're feeling. Not so with tendinopathy. So let's go back. First, I want to preface 
this to everyone that a lot of the information that I'm going to be spilling out here is based on the research by Professor Jill Cook down in Australia. She has dedicated her entire career to studying tendinopathy, you know, the progression of how the injury occurs, treatment and everything like that. So if you really want to dive into that research, you know, check out her stuff. But the big thing to understand is first, do you even have patellar tendinopathy because here's the deal a lot of times if people have that general knee pain that is around the patellar tendon they'll think automatically patellar tendinopathy or tendinitis but a lot of times i find that's not necessarily the case especially for a lot of my you know later 20s 30s and 40 year olds a lot of times if we look at the research true tendinopathy is more so something that we see in a lot of the younger population especially like you know young baseball or basketball players, volleyball players that are doing a lot of jumping. Mm -hmm. And technically a lot of the pain that you may be feeling, let's say you're a power lifter, you're 35 years old. You know, a lot of times that type of pain is really something that's coming from more of the patellofemoral joint. So we would call that like a compression or tracking injury. And you're just feeling the the pain in the patellar tendon because it's being referred there. It's not necessarily a tendon injury. Now, here's how you decipher between the two. Tendon pain, that's true tendinopathy, sort of has three markers that we can go by. First, it's pinpoint pain. So we can look at your kneecap, your patella, and at the very bottom of it, it's called the inferior pole. That's where the patellar tendon attaches. That's a very common site of tendinopathy. You'll then also have tendon pain that's caused by tendinopathy where the tendon attaches to the tibia bone. That's sort of the nub that sticks out right there. Those are the two common sites for tendinitis or tendinopathy. Often pain that's right in the middle of the tendon is not true tendinopathy. It's referred pain from the joint itself. Mm. So that's the one thing. The second thing is that it's load related. What that means is that if I do a bodyweight squat, I'm going to rate my pain 0 to 10. 0 is no pain. 10 is the worst pain I could think of. Let's say that bodyweight squat's like, you know, a 1 out of 10 pain. It's barely causing any pain. And then I do a single leg squat. Obviously, with my single leg squat, I got a lot more of my body weight. It's all supported by one joint, the knee. So that may be a little bit more painful. Well, then what if I do 10 tuck jumps in a row? Well, what I'm doing is I'm using my tendon as a spring. And what that does is place a ton of load directly on those fibers of the patellar tendon. And that will cause more pain in true tendinopathy. And here's the third thing is that it will also stay pinpointed to that area. A lot of people will have pain in their knee and they'll be like, ah, it's right in my patellar tendon. And I'll say, all right, well, do all these things. Does it stay directly in that area? Can you pinpoint it with one finger? And they're like, well, it may get a little worse, but it sort of spreads maybe to the outer side of the kneecap, or sometimes it's like the whole knee is achy. That's not true tendinopathy. That's a different type of knee pain. So your treatment approach is going to be a little bit different, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're using uh, patellar uh, tendinopathy as the example here, is, uh, and you mentioned mm-hmm. younger athletes. Uh, is, is it called jumper's knee casually? Exactly. And the reason why it was called jumper's knee is because whenever you are doing a lot of repetitive jumping, like in basketball or volleyball, you're using the tendon like a spring because technically the fibers of a tendon are a little bit different than muscle. Their goal 
is to store and release a lot of energy. Mm. So whenever they get overloaded, it's you know more common to see that sort of tendinopathy. So that's why we originally called it jumper's knee in the research. What about um, elbows or shoulders or other uh, areas that are common for tendinopathy? Is that still often you feel like um, a younger person's type deal? Yeah, it's really different when we're talking, especially about upper body tendon uh, related injuries, especially if we're looking at like the elbow, um, like lateral elbow pain uh, originally was thought to be a lot more muscle. We're now thinking it's more, we call it lateral epicondylalgia, which is just a crazy, stupid name. It's really hard to pronounce most of the time for most people, just lateral elbow pain or lateral elbow tendon pain. Um, That's usually something that we see. If you look at the research, the demographics are a little bit more sort of your older 30s, 40s, and 50s. So, um, yeah, if, again, the demographics of research, they're looking at norms. So while you may see, you know, 80% of people are 15-year-old basketball players in research, that doesn't mean that a 35-year-old female powerlifter couldn't still develop the injury. It's just looking at norms when we're looking at research. Yeah, because I find uh, elbow if I had to guess, just 100% observational. Elbow mm-hmm. is probably one of the most common, at least uh, in some of the lifting world, you know, because you're, you're trying to wedge under a bar to squat. Then you're trying to either jerk or you're bench pressing, you're strict pressing. Then you're doing your accessories, you're hammering your triceps, and maybe you're even doing some push-ups or, you know, if you're CrossFit and you're doing burpees, and this elbow is just not only taking a high amount of volume but a high amount of stress on, on generally a pretty small joint. Um, are there any kind of uh, tells that you can pick out like you did for the knee for the elbow and then what are some maybe uh fixes if you're allowed to say yeah that's a great idea well first let's let's bring it back to the science of how sort of the tendon injury even occurs at the first place you mentioned uh the stress and the load and the volume if we think about a tendon almost as a um i'm trying to think about the best way to explain this almost as a, a thermometer and the thermometer uh rises and falls obviously with the temperature but think about your tendons as a thermometer, and the amount of load tolerance that your tendon has is based on how high or low the thermometer has risen. So let's say you've been training for like 15, 20 years. You have a lot of life uh, or a lot of experience in your tendons. Your tendon strength, your load tolerance that your tendons can tolerate is fairly high. So you have a high uh, thermometer read if you're looking at it. But what happens is that if we take, let's say, an extended leaf, let's say you just got done with, you know, powerlifting nationals and you're like, well, I'm going to peace out and take a two week break. I'm going to go lay on the beach and not train at all. What happens is that you technically deloaded your tendons slightly. So your thermometer dropped just slightly what your load tolerance level is. Well, what happens if you jump right back into training at that high level of volume and intensity, technically you will exceed your current load tolerance capacity. You're going to go above where your thermometer is reading right now. The overload is what causes the tendon injury to spark in the first place. So every athlete may be a little bit different. If you have athlete A and athlete B, they have totally different training histories. They may have totally different set points of load tolerance in their tendons, they're going to respond very differently. But a lot of times what we see is that tendon injuries are sparked because the load that is placed on them, whether that's in one particular training day or a you know group of training, whether we're talking weeks or months, exceeds the current load tolerance capacity of a tendon. So we're going above what the set thermometer is looking like. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. So, 
Yeah. So basically, if we look at different tendons, uh, the way in which we can find out whether or not we've exceeded that is to place them under extreme load and see how they respond. So when we're talking about the, uh, the patellar tendon, in my evaluation, I'll be doing things like um, a regular double leg squat, a single leg squat, multiple tuck jumps, and I'm rating and seeing how that tendon responds to the increase in load. Well, similar things can happen at the elbow, especially the lateral elbow, which is by far the more common uh, tendon injury if we're speaking at the elbow. So different things would be uh, placing that elbow in uh, a lot of uh, compression and load by different grips. Uh, For example, if you go and do an overhand grip on a uh, on a barbell so you're if you're a power lifter and maybe you take uh, an alternating grip the grip that is the overhand will actually load that lateral tendon much more than the medial side and the reason is because when you make a fist and you grip obviously you're working your flexor tendons but if we want to make a, a fist and really grip hard on that barbell but we want the the muscles of our hand to flex without also flexing the wrist the muscles on the back side your wrist extensors have to contract at the same time to stabilize the wrist joint so the harder you grip with an overhand grip as if you're doing a, a deadlift the more force you're placing on the lateral tendons we have sort of this lateral connection a common tendon that inserts on that lateral side of your elbow it's called your lateral epicondyle that's basically uh, a test that we will often use to determine whether or not that's a cause for lateral tendinopathy now the elbow is a little trickier because there's a lot of other things that can go on there often we could be seeing um, a lot of referral from issues at the shoulder so we could have you know limited mobility or strength all the way up at the shoulder and that may be a cause for overload at the elbow joint, you could have poor wrist mobility. You could just be overloading tendons uh, due to poor uh, training, periodization. So there's a lot of things that go into figuring out and diagnosing what the true cause is. Uh, <clears throat> does imaging really help uh, MRI um, make a determination, a diagnostic determination, or is it just like, is, is it more of a functional assessment? Good question. I would say, Based on my research, imaging can sometimes be helpful, but sometimes not. If we took imaging, especially of your patellar tendons across the board um, for people that are like 30 years old, the amount of degradation that we could see in the tendons uh, could be high in a number of people that don't have any symptoms. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's the big reason why imaging can sometimes be helpful, but sometimes not. And here's here's the big reason. I'm sure you guys have maybe heard the analogy that uh, when a tendon degrades, it sort of creates these small islands of dead tissue. So let's say this is the first time that you've had patellar tendon pain. And it's true tendinopathy based on the test that we've talked about before. Well, if you continue pushing through it and you continue squatting and lifting and creating more pain, what eventually happens is that you're causing this cellular response in the tissues. And eventually some of the tissue starts to degrade and basically die off. And if you took an image of it with like an MRI, you would look and you would see a cross-sectional area. You'd see like small islands of dead tissue. Mm. Now, here's what happens is people will often refer to that as like the hole of a donut. Now, current medical practices like PRP injections and things like that 
and the way in which some people will try to stimulate the tendon with uh, maybe scraping techniques or different things like that, maybe even laser, their goal with doing so is to try to stimulate that dead tissue to try to regenerate it, Mm. which actually research shows does not really happen. So the idea behind the analogy of the donut in the hole is to say, while you may have some of that pathological tissue, some of that tissue that sort of died off, don't focus your attention on the hole. Focus your attention on the donut because there's still a lot of healthy tissue in the tendon. And what we can do is we can improve the strength of that healthy tissue that's still there to make up for that deadened tissue. And as a whole, we will strengthen the load tolerance capacity of the full tendon. Because what actually happens is that sometimes the tendon will actually respond sometimes to the issue of the deadened tissue by growing more healthy tissue. So if we can uh, improve the load tolerance capacity of the entire tendon, it doesn't necessarily matter if you have some deadened tissue because the entire tendon as a whole can still be brought back to life as far as its total strength. And then that's where you get to functionally back to a normal and higher level of performance. And how do you do that? Because that sounds amazing. <laughs> Great question. So <laughs> the first first thing first, obviously you're in pain, right? You've gone to a... You've gone to anyone, a chiropractor, physical therapist, a doctor, and you have this pain. You're like, where do I even start? The first thing we want to do is we want to decrease pain, right? Because the last thing you want to be doing is walking around in pain or even training in pain because that's going to mess up everything. Not only is it going to put you psychologically in a bad place, but it's also going to decrease your performance eventually. The first thing that has been shown to be effective, and now this is mostly lower body tendon injuries, is isometrics. Now, these are heavy isometrics. For most people that don't know out there, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners do, an isometric is obviously a very, very heavy contraction of the muscle without any joint movement. So if you just made a bicep curl, but you didn't move your elbow joint, that is an isometric of your biceps. Well, what we can do is do a isometric of your quad muscles, and that in research has shown that five sets of 45 seconds, heavy isometrics can actually decrease tendon pain thereafter for up to like 45 minutes. Mm. And it will also improve the firing rate of your quad muscles because a lot of times pain inhibits muscle function. So if you have a lot of tendon pain, your muscles aren't going to be firing coordination wise and to their full capacity. So it can be very helpful. Let's say you're dealing with a patellar tendon injury but you're also trying to train for a meet and you're a couple weeks out. Obviously you don't want to take off time for some people. This can be a helpful adjunct to allow you to continue training. Now I will always say like, you know, take caution and just training through any type of injury, but especially early on in the rehab process, when you're dealing with pain, isometrics can be very helpful. The big thing is it has to be heavy enough. So like a, a wall set, isn't heavy enough. Mm. What you can do is a Spanish squat. And at first I thought these were, I mean, pretty lame when I saw videos of people doing this, when I first saw them, I'm like, what the heck is a Spanish squat? But you just take a really heavy, like stretch band, place it around a rack, step into it. And you're basically doing a reverse wall sit. So the band is holding you up and you're going to sit back like you're doing, like you would have a a wall behind your back. So you're going to be very vertical and you're just going to sit there for 45 seconds. And I promise you for a lot of people, This is a killer on your quads. And 
the thing about the Spanish squad is it actually is a very good diagnostic tool as well. Because if you do five for 45 seconds and it is truly a patellar tendinopathy, you will have less pain right after when you go back and test some of those prior movements Mm. like the single leg squat or the double leg tuck jump. Because often, especially at the patellar tendon, the tendon responds to isometrics by showing decrease in pain thereafter and improved neuromuscular contraction. So you're able to use your muscles to a little bit greater potential. So that's obviously the first step is isometrics. The second step is we need to be able to improve the strength load, the, the load tolerance capacity of those tendons. So two exercises that I love to use, box squats and Bulgarian split squats. Now, the reason I love box squats, obviously, we can load a lot. Mm. And the thing with patellar tendinopathy is that often, because they speak, tendons speak sort of the language of load, if you do super slow tempo squats, you should not have pain. Now, sometimes some people will have tendinopathy-related pain at the very bottom of a really deep squat. So if I'm talking to my like, Olympic lifters who squat grass with a lot of knee-over-toe excursion, sometimes that could create a little bit of pain. But that's why we introduce the box squat. If you load up, and I'm talking as much as possible for a high rep range at first, let's say you're loading up 70% of your back squat, and we're doing sets of 12. And we're doing a slow tempo, so a three-second eccentric, maybe a, a small pause, and then a slow concentric too. Because you're going slow tempo, you're not using the tendon like a spring, and you're putting a lot of load on the tendon. The tendon likes load at the right tempo, that should be pain-free. So you're going to be using that to improve the strength tolerance, but not pushing yourself into a position where you're overloading the tendon, using it like a spring, and creating pain. So there's a lot of guess and check work as far as am I loading enough with things like this? Because not only do you want to critically appraise and analyze, am I causing pain while I'm doing it? But you also have to think, am I causing more pain the next day? Because tendons sometimes take a day or so to adapt to the stresses you placed on it. So, for example, let's say you're coming back and you're like, all right, today I'm going to do four sets of 12 reps, tempo, back squat. Uh, We're trying to go as heavy as possible, maintaining good technique. Three, two, three as your tempo drive. And you felt good. By the end of that last set, if you're doing it heavy enough, you don't want to do a fifth. The next day, you want to analyze using your testing from before. Do like a small single leg squat. What happened? Do you feel any different than you did the day before? If you feel the same or you feel maybe a little bit better, you know that you just loaded enough the day prior. The next time you load, go a little bit heavier. Are you using the box squat as um, a a tool just to shorten range of motion uh, and kind of doing a a normal, what you would normally squat technique-wise? Or are you kind of box squatting to uh, eliminate some kind of knee over toe? So it depends on the person. If that person does not have pain going to a full depth, then I would allow them to go to full depth. Um, Because tendinopathy can sometimes be brought out by a full deep excursion where the knee goes over the toe a lot, sometimes I'll use the box squat as also a depth uh, limiter. Gotcha. Um, So, But also we're loading in a very familiar way. Because the last thing I hate doing is saying, for especially for like a power lifter or weightlifter, stop squatting because that's what all the medical advice is nowadays. You right. have an injury, especially your knee, and the last thing you want to do is go to a doctor who doesn't understand your training and they go, Oh, your knee hurts, 
take these pills and stop squatting for three weeks because that doesn't fix the underlying cause at all. The last thing you want to do, especially with a tendinopathy injury, is stop loading completely yeah, because what that's going to do is <laughs> – yeah, I mean, it's just like the original cause of it. You're going to just continue decreasing your load tolerance capacity. That thermometer analogy I used before, mm. your little red line is just going to continue dropping. Makes sense. Makes yeah. sense. So the, also, the other thing you can do, obviously, is the, the Bulgarian split squat, like I talked about. Because here's the thing, is you can also cover up imbalances and sort of hide issues when you go double leg all the time. Now, this is especially for mm. my powerlifters out there because – how often do powerlifters try single leg? Yeah, rare. Not often, yeah, real rare. right? Exactly. Well, what happens is that you can often develop these small asymmetries and imbalances, and you will never know about it until it's too late. So when you're coming back from an injury in the rehab world, especially doing some single leg training can also allow you to place load on those imbalances and fix them in a way that's going to help you progress back to where you need to be. So the Bulgarian split squat's a great way to do that as well. Uh, just a totally hypothetical curbside consult. Um, say you're someone who, um, on imaging has a like hole punch, um, uh, defect in the supraspinatus tendon and mm -hmm. sort of generalized shoulder pain. And mm -hmm. in physical therapy, uh, that was, you know, a lot of internal, external rotation, whatever. Um, uh, what it primarily did was light up the trap and then cause neck pain okay uh and so it was very difficult to go forward with with the um uh physical therapy for this um, hypothetical person asking yeah. for a friend asking <laughs> for a friend that's what they say on the internet <laughs> i hear that a few times it, yeah so, it really hurts so in I'm, my groin region doc asking yes. for a friend yes <laughs> So I would say the big thing, when you're looking at the shoulder, again, the shoulder complex, sort of like the elbow, there's a lot of things you need to bring into it. Yeah. And we, first off, we need to understand, if we're doing rehab correctly, we will not create pain anywhere else. So if we're doing like an internal or external rotation movement, hmm. well, that's a great rehab exercise. If it's creating pain in the shoulder, if it's creating neck pain, if it's creating an overactive trap, either you're doing it incorrectly, so we would use different cues, or it's just not the right exercise for your body at that time. Mm. So that's the big thing is a lot of times, and this is a big, I guess it would say a cause for concern. When you look across Instagram or just social media in general, and you see physical therapists, chiropractors, anyone try to put out uh, exercises that are meant to be for injuries, you have to meet that exercise with the context of the individual. It has to be tested measures because you can't just say rotator cuff injuries do external rotation because what if that person doesn't need that exercise at that time or that exercise creates pain? What do you do then? That's why you always have to have specific tests to understand whether or not that exercise is right for that person. External rotation exercises are great for a lot of people, especially at the shoulder. Reason being, a number of people who develop injuries at the shoulder do so because their posterior cuff um, develops an imbalance. So if we look at your shoulder joint specifically, the arm bone, your humerus, connects and fits on your shoulder blade or scapula like a golf ball sits on a golf tee. Mm. Right on top of that is your rotator cuff muscles. You've got four muscles that sort of connect, and their job is to dynamically control the golf ball on the golf tee. Now, often we develop imbalances 
because we're so very heavily forward dominant, right? We bench press, we pull up, we do everything in front of our bodies throughout our day. Often we neglect the back. And if we are doing back exercises, it's often bigger, larger movements. We're not doing a lot of stability based exercises. And often for that reason, we develop imbalances just like we can elsewhere in the body where the posterior shoulder muscles aren't doing their job to supply sufficient stability to keep the golf ball on the golf tee. So the ball rolls forward. That's where we get a lot of impingements and things like that. Just saying, well, that's where your issue is. Do external rotation doesn't necessarily fit every single person at that point. Mm -hmm. There may be different exercises that are going to be more effective and efficient for that person to help address their imbalances so they can get back. So that's why a lot of the stuff I try to put out, I'm like, look, do you have this kind of pain? Try this test. And if you found that this test is positive, try this exercise. Is that exercise painful? If it is, it's not right for you yet. Either the cue's not right for you, we need to do something a little bit different technique-wise, or maybe it's just not right for you. Try this other thing. It's hard to obviously get a lot of that across in like a one-minute Instagram mm -hmm. video, but you know, that's as a practitioner, as a clinician, when I'm treating patients, if I have 10 people lined up that all have anterior shoulder pain, they may may have very different treatment plans based on the specific uh, imbalances that they show. And they may all have that same, like you said, hole punch in the supraspinatus. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing. If you look back at the, the methodology, sort of the theory behind a lot of treatments, the medical community a lot of times today has, we would call it the pathoanatomical way of looking at things. Basically what that means is that we talk about injuries as far as what specific tissue is injured. But often that doesn't necessarily carry over to clinically how I treat someone. Because mm. just because someone has a supraspinatus tendon tear doesn't necessarily mean that I am going to treat them the same way. Because it could be that tear could be due to 10 different things. For example, let's say that per, like person A has an extremely stiff and inflexible lat. Well, your lat muscle, what it does is it internally rotates your shoulder. Well, if that person's trying to do a lot of snatches, a lot of overhead motion, that stiff lat is not going to allow their shoulder to rotate correctly and stay in the center of the golf tee. So that golf ball is going to be moving around and smashing into different things and creating that possible rotator cuff tear. That's sort of the, the line that that person could take to get there. Well, what if person B is extremely hypermobile? They've got a ton of lat flexibility specific to that last person, but they have an imbalance because their posterior rotator cuff and maybe their rhomboids are extremely weak and unstable. They're not providing the sufficient stability for the joint. Well, that person could develop the exact same type of pathoanatomical injury. They could have the same tissue become injured, but they're going to have a different course of treatment to fix the problem. So that's why a lot of physical therapists, chiropractors in the rehab world today, you're sort of seeing this emergence of a different way of understanding how we classify injuries, not necessarily saying that we don't want to know what tissues are injured, but that doesn't necessarily cue or, you know, change our treatment because we want to look first at imbalances from a movement perspective, always understanding and looking at the body, you know, through the lens of movement rather than a microscope that looks at the specific tissue that's injured. That makes sense to me. Uh, th this hypothetical person is looking potentially at some uh, exploratory surgery or not. And so uh... mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I would always 
always challenge someone that's looking for surgery to first try to find a good physical therapist that is very knowledgeable in their movement background and training uh, that can help you try to take a conservative approach first because there is no such thing as non-invasive surgery. Every single surgery is invasive. That's the entire point that you're going into their body. So I I hate seeing those. I mean, everyone sees those surgery commercials online. Oh, this non-invasive back pain. And in two days you can be out kayaking with your friends. You know, that's not how it goes. Every single surgery is invasive. So if we can try to limit the amount of surgeries, you know, all the better. Now, obviously there's a time and a place and mm. some people do require surgery and in that, you know, in that instance, I'm always here as well to help rehab back from a type of surgery. Awesome. Yeah. I think, uh, I think we covered uh, ten- tendinopathy. I wish I could say tendinitis, but I'm going to try to erase that from my vocabulary. <laughs> um, no worries. Appreciate it. Uh, where can people find you, Aaron? Yeah, I'm all across social media. Instagram is the page that I make sure I put new content on every single day. As much free content as possible. My goal is that if I'm learning something and continuing to grow as a clinician, I'm putting it out there for everyone else. I don't hold back my uh, my different teachings and try to hide behind a 995 wall to get the stuff that I'm trying to teach. I put out as much free content as I can every single day all across social media instagram twitter facebook um i have my own podcast and my blog website if you wanted to read into anything that we talked about today with tendinopathy go on squatuniversity.com click on the blog article tab at the top and scroll all the way down and the title is how to correctly treat patellar and quad tendon pain it's got all the science and research on there but in a way that it's easily digestible for anyone no matter your educational background awesome thank you very much you're welcome, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. I am at the Jim McD on all the social medias. Mike is? Silent Mike, 2Ks. Uh, give us a rating review. Check out Squat University on, on Instagram and, and iTunes, and we appreciate you guys for listening. All right, the show, 50% facts, 4% is a word. We'll see you next week.